0: to watch time has been somewhat compromised, so i 'm going to hold my phone I promise i 'm not texting uh, unless it's my daughter since she 's not here, and I kind of have a policy of always interruptible by family um, man, guys, I've been reading the Bible and listening to the bible my since I was five years old and uh that's when my parents kind of put me in a nursery school, and they told me Bible stories. Now, what they didn't do is they didn't interrupt those stories. Uh, let me give you an example of how the Bible gets interrupted a lot. And I'm not going to even use a Bible story for this. I'm just going to make a story. Once upon a time, there was a princess. Two. That princess had a puppy named Fred. Three. Three. The puppy thread was kidnapped by an evil music- a magician. 4 The princess went to the brave knight who was a woman and asked the knight 5 to rescue her puppy. 6 The brave knightess found out where the puppy was. 7 And she wiped the floor with the kidnapper's bottom. 8 in return, the puppy to the princess. Nine. And they all lived happy. In 10, they all lived happily ever. So I, I, so I usually tell better princess stories. I used to tell my daughter an epic saga, which I wish I would have recorded because not to be so prideful, but I think it would have made an awesome children's book. Sir. And her name was Princess Jellybean and the inventors of the loving Princess Jellybean. And Kathleen had a habit of finding out wherever we had our candy stored and we found and would steal little bits of it so we wouldn't notice it and had a stash in our room. So Princess Jellybean was a good name. But if you tell stories and interrupt them with numbers, it kind of ruins the beauty and the flow of a story. Now, if you take someone who is mildly dyslexic and they're reading a story and you have chapters and numbers And then you have all these footnotes at the bottom that explain how to read that story. And someone has just a tiny bit of ADD. You get distracted and you can read 20 whole pages and not remember what the story's about because of numbers and footnotes. But guess what people did to the Bible? They put numbers and footnotes in it. And that means people become Bible experts. And they even know the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and they can miss the story. And we're going to be talking about a story in the Bible that I have heard preached on probably 50 times in my life, and only two of them uh, were focused on the story bit of it. Only two of them related to the story. The rest, it's a chapter that talks about a lot of numbers that's divided up by numbers We got lost in the numbers, and I never was reminded, I would never even think of, wow, Jesus is so loving. God loves me so much. When I read it, not because the story didn't say it, but because we got lost in the numbers and not enraptured by the story. So I'm going to say, just spoiler alert, guys, whether you can get bored with the rest of the sermon and check out, but even you little guys, all right? and you young people, and you disenchanted high schoolers, etc. Hear me out this, is God, Jesus, unconditionally loves you in your place of greatest pain, greatest vulnerability. He, He loves you unconditionally and enters into the place where you've experienced abuse, in the place you've experienced neglect, in the place you've had shame put on you. God is in that place and he specifically found a way, God, through the person of Jesus, to feel every bad thing and experience every bad thing you've felt, so he can stand with you knowing what's going on. And if you get anything, is God unconditionally loves you. Now, we're going to talk about one of the most confusing passages of Scripture in the world, and it's going to come back to God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. Um... First, three little ways to help you us all read the Bible. And there's more little ways, but I'm just going to give you three today. Uh, one is to understand the call of Abraham in Genesis, okay? God calls an old guy. He and his wife never could have kids. In the culture, that was the worst thing that could happen to you. He was a guy that had land and wealth, but him and his wife were old and beyond the popping babies out stage. God calls Abraham and says, by the way, you're going to have a mighty nation. You'll have millions of descendants. First thing you got to do is discard all your assets, empty your 401k uh, account, get rid of your land, and you're going to become a wandering shepherd. You know, the people you see as poor, desperate, uh, uh, pathetic people, the shepherds, you're going to become one of those people, and you're not going to have any of your money to fall back on. So that's the Bible. That is a scary story. Listen, if, if you're a kid, it's not that scary. It's like, cool, I can be with animals. we in a petting zoo. If you're an adult, you're saying, great, there goes kids' college. There goes this, that, and the other. I've just lost everything. And you would go to therapy to figure out how to find your identity amidst losing everything. As a kid, though, it's cool. It's like, sheep, awesome. I only get to see them at the Columbus Zoo. So anyway, God tells Abraham one thing. And if you understand this, this is one of the keys to understanding the whole Bible. He says, I'm going to make you into a nation and through your descendant, singular, all people in the world will be blessed. That word, all people, means whatever I do with you and your nation, eventually every person, including all the tribes that scare the poo out of you, are going to be blessed. Every people group that you've never even imagined yet is going to be blessed because I'm doing one, I'm doing a specific thing through your family. So at the very beginning... Uh, uh, this idea is, Abraham was not given this idea of Jewish nationalism or Zionism. Abraham was saying, you guys are the test kitchen for the banquet for the Lord. So the thing is, everything that happens to Israel that's good is meant to happen to every person in the world. And that means our Afghan brothers and sisters. That means our Haitian brothers and sisters. That means our Chinese brothers and sisters. That means our brothers and sisters in South Linden who are still, still suffering the effects of redlining from the 50s and 60s. Whatever God talks to Israel is meant to go mainstream through Jesus. That's the first thing. Second thing is the, the ethic of the Old Testament evolves and changes over and over and over again. And people like to teach this idea that God never changes. And I believe God's character never changes. God is always love. God's response to people is always dynamic because he's a relational God. Not that from a distance. God is in the thick and the poo with us. So God is a relational God. So if, if you use a pagan system to say perfection equals unchangingness, that is garbage that some people in church adopted at an early time. The truth is God is dynamic and relational and pursuing and responsive, and God even is emotionally provoked. Do you know, my friends, even kids, do you know when you're weeping, when you are scared, when you have a nightmare, there's an element of God that is weeping with you? Do you know, adults, when you are rejected and shamed and betrayed and humiliated, do you know Jesus feels that humiliation with you? So let me say, God dynamically responds, and the part of the infinite, omnipotent magnificence of God that somehow He is able to be dynamically responsive with all of us all at once. There is, I mean, there is a love, like I oftentimes, just the role of being pastor, I will sometimes talk to someone who's lost a child in the same day that I talk to someone whose marriage has been restored. And I've got to like... Teleport between the world of the worst thing in the world to the best thing in the world. And emotionally, my brain hurts. Even when good, even whenever you transition, especially for me, my, I get brain hurt. And I think, would, it's so great that I have a God that doesn't get brain hurt through being present. I can only be present so much. And even Jesus, God in human form, set boundaries around his presence. Jesus took naps. Jesus said, out of here, Jesus ghosted on people, or you want to say he holy ghosted on people sometimes. But when Jesus ascended to heaven, he sent a Holy Spirit so we can all experience the presence of Jesus through the Spirit of Jesus in a way the Holy Spirit doesn't take naps. Jesus takes naps. If At this part of the story, I hope you all take naps. Some of my favorite ways to prep sermons is think about something a long time, get stuck, take a nap, and I wake up with an idea. I don't know if that's taught in any classes, but it works for me. There's theories about that in neuroscience and lucid dreaming ideas. Anyway, so the second thing is the, the call of Abraham is God's going to work with a nation to bless all peoples. So, any reading of scripture, Old and New Testament, or anything God, you feel God is leading you to think your people group is more important than another people group anywhere, anything that causes you to think, like anything that would cause me to think my son Ian is more deserving of health care than someone born in South Linden. If anyone thinks because I was born into multi-generational resources that I have more of a right for nurture and safety and care than anyone else, we got to go back to God's trajectory of humankind is working through someone to bless everyone. All right? If you understand that, 90% of the misreading of scriptures are gone. And you see people use the numbers and jumping around verses to justify slavery, domestic violence, uh, not speaking truth to evil, for looking past abuse and abusive structures, and being willing to kill yourself to try to be godly instead of finding life through God. So that's number two. First thing to understand, what was my first thing? The The call of Abraham. The second thing I said was the progressive revelation of love and mercy. You notice in the Bible, there's a lot of things in the initial rules. And I'm going to get into some trouble here. But the, 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 the Jewish Torah, the rules, the metaphor for Torah, I think, is methadone. The whole world was addicted to appeasing these tribal gods by killing. Or other things I won't talk with kids around. And you, the idea was, if I kill someone I love or I kill my enemy on this altar, God might give me good crops. And there was no enlightened, there was no like atheist groups that said, oh, we're more enlightened to that. That's just a, so everyone believed in some kind of God that wanted you to kill. And then God comes in and institutes this very complicated system that says, uh, don't kill people. Don't, don't kill your kids as if to reiterate it, Uh, kill food, but it's used to feed priests that you're not giving all this money to, but you're feeding the priests don't get to acquire real estate, but they get to eat the food, and the leftovers get to go to the poor who are too disabled to work in the fields The people always leave a portion unharvested so poor people can harvest. You know, I'm gonna go, I could go off for hours on that. But so we have that. Then we have rules about how to deal with household mold and what kinds of fabric to wear. And what we find is some of those laws, if you just read the story of the whole Hebrew scriptures, it seems like God doesn't care about 80% of what gets written down in the book. But there's certain ideas he cares about more and more and more. And you, uh, you'll you even get to the point in several times in scripture, God is casting shade or his prophets are casting shade on the sacrifice system. The one that you have all the details out. The one that people who like gaming and engineering love to make grids to explain all the sacrifices. People that, uh, People like me are just like, oh, I can't keep any of these straight. But their trajectory is, I don't desire burnt offerings and sacrifices. I want you just to obey and love. So the progression of the gospel, if people think God's... It seems like a great part of the law was to give people an alternative to the water they were swimming in. But what happens is it seems it's like God's almost a workout coach. He's pulling off certain braces and safeties And he's adding more discs to the weight to develop your strength. But initially, God accommodates a system we can't amaze. I think the story of the ancient world, unless you're the most powerful person, is horror. The only way not to be scared of ancient world stories is to be the one who's inflicting horror on others. You're either a victim or victimizer in the ancient world compared to what we know now. All right? That's the story. So um, we see this demonstrated where there's certain elements that God highlights over and over again, and then Jesus brings the whammy on these elements of the law, and there's stuff that literally doesn't get mentioned again or gets denigrated, even by Jesus. So that's why I believe the, 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 the Torah was methadone to get people addicted to the heroin of violence moving towards the king that's all shadowy and hard to understand except through certain festivals that eventually will become crystal clear in Jesus. So my my parents among us, can I tell you, like, you are the storyteller. You are the chief storyteller of your children. And what I'm trying to do today, if you have children or you're in children's life or friends, is try to digest what I'm saying and tell stories to your kids and give examples. No one knows your kid's Better than you. And I just want to anoint you and bless you all as ministers of the gospel to tell stories to your kids. And they may, even now, they may be bored and coloring and stuff. And I hope they just get the overflow of the Holy Spirit here. But today you are being equipped to be a storyteller to your kids because no one has more influence. So I bless you because I think we have the best parents in the world here. I'm just giddy about it even. So, anyway, so the progressive revelation. The call of Abraham is to all people. In the apex of the Old Testament, Micah 6 8, in one verse we preach on it says, Oh oh person, what does God require of you? Three things to do justice, to be enraptured in love with mercy, and to carry and walk throughout your day-to-day life with an operating system of humility. To do justice, that doesn't mean debate justice. This is never to, pers- what it indicates is there's never an opportunity in our world, in our context, to not do justice. Any human system we live in, be it America or Uzbekistan, every system has codified injustice somewhere. Every system in the world has laws that are evil. No, and some may be more than others, but we, as followers of God, first thing, we are doers of justice, which recognize there's always injustice, so no one gets a pass. I used to hear that America was the land of justice and everyone else sucked. And I realized, no, there's no there's always acting of justice till the return of Christ. So, which is cool for me because it's a lot less complicated. And I don't do complexity very well. Do justice, love mercy. What I love about this, it doesn't say do mercy. Because justice and mercy in a lot of ways are inextricable. It says love mercy. That means God wants to reform our hearts and heal our traumatic brains and open us. God wants to broaden our emotional palate. Uh, Little kids, little kids. Do I have any little kids here? Okay, is that Oliver? Okay, Oliver, I want to talk to you. Oliver, did you know God has given you a superpower? we've talked a lot about superpowers. Do you know what that superpower is? The infinite capacity to be kinder and love more. Do you realize, you know how you love people that are hurting and you care about people that are hungry and suffering, Oliver? Do you know every year in your life that love can grow bigger? And literally, when, it, when you're 40, you could have a big love like this And when you're 50, you can have a big love that goes even bigger. You have a superpower that no matter how many hard things happen to you, Oliver, you can grow in loving mercy. Because mercy, loving is relational. We do not love stuff. Though I do like a lot of things. We do not love stuff. We love people. And loving mercy is loving people. And so to have an enraptured love with mercy is like, I sing songs about this, I write poetry to this, let's have, you know, mercy is a holiday every day. Literally in love with mercy. I think of when I'm in love, and I'm in love with my wife, and I think of what I want to do and all my little ideas, and sometimes I fail at this, but how I want to love her. And I think, when I think of mercy is, I want God to always grow my creativity of new ways to express God's mercy, because we love mercy. And then walk with humility is basically the Will Wheaton rule. Some of you know what that is. You can Google it, but others I won't say it. Walk with humility is be kind. You don't know everything. Walking with humility is realizing I have a miles to go before we sleep. And, and don't be a jerk, basically. <laughs> so do justice, love, mercy, walk humbly. That's what all of it points to. Jesus. Now, I'm going to read... Something that secretly comes over and over in the Bible. Guys, kids, adults, I, wanna, I literally shared this passage with a friend of mine, and I've got a lot of friends, and this is kind of disheartening for me, but I get it because of hashtag where we live. I have a lot of friends that basically uh, believe, how can you be moral and say you're a Christian? How can you be a good person and say you're a Christian? Um. But not you, Jeff, because we always talk about Jesus in the gospel and passages like this. And what I want to say is you're talking more about a culture that has stolen Christian words, not about Jesus. And I say, listen, and I said, please read the gospel, Mark, and tell me what upsets you the most, you know, and tell me the, the person on TV or the person at this political rally who says they're a Christian leader. Uh you can literally take just from one of the Gospels and point by point probably rebuke everything they say. It's Jesus, 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 Jesus. So I want to tell you, I, we're doing Daniel 9, but literally I'm going to spend a tiny minute about of Daniel 9 where I was in a church one time that spent 10 to 12 weeks on Daniel 9, the second half only, and never once was the word mercy, kindness, love, and jubilee and poverty mentioned. 12 weeks and never had any of that addressed. I was never told that God loves me, God loves me, God loves me. In those 12 weeks, I didn't realize what this passage was referring to. And it was a lot of hard math. And as I said, I'm not good at math. So I even felt like more of a loser, all right? And I was actually reminiscing with John McCollum. We both sat the same series and we were like, Man, it's, amazing. it's like seriously so much more fun to read the Bible, because I hear I love you on every page. Um, so I read this passage to a friend of mine when we were talking about uh, debt, African debt and multi, multi-generational debt among impoverished people, and basically it's one of those, we have no influence, so let's talk about how to fix the world type of conversations. Anyone ever have those? And I read him this passage. And I'm not going to quote directly. He said, literally, as I'm going through this passage, this guy who is a very outspoken with a lot of colorful words regarding Christians is tearing up. He starts to tear up. He gets emotional. And he said, I want to paraphrase. He said, I've never heard of anything more flipping beautiful in my life. And he's crying. I've never heard. And I said, And then that's to talking about Jesus. And we're still friends. And this conversation has literally been on-ending, And it's so far been going on for 10 years. And I think a lot of times God's so patient and works so slowly is I think people are on the 30-year plan to finally being able to believe you are loved. I don't think God gives up on people. And I look at this as in his heart, this person had something that desired something at the heart of God. That's why I don't believe in total depravity. I don't believe people are totally messed up. The idea that God can build something that one sin destroys beyond recognition. If your house totally is destroyed by one storm, you're going to question how good the builder actually was. I believe in sin. I believe in redemption. I believe all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but I do not believe uh, those without Christ bear no reflection of the goodness of God. So, because... I I have a much higher opinion of God's workmanship than that. I can't worship and sing worship songs and believe that he's such a bad builder. All right? I've just alienated like two-thirds of white Christendom. You know, a lot of Christendom, international Christendom of not-white Enlightenment thinkers tend to not get into that as much for some reason. Anyway, so I want to read Leviticus. And guys, that passage that made my friend cry, I'm going to read... But I'm going to read only a part of it. And I want to say at the end of the passage, it has some really confusing things because it talks about rules of slaves and not having slaves. And specifically, this is the methadone. It forbids a certain kind of slavery, but not all slavery. But we see through the whole narrative of Scripture slaves being set free. And we see this eventually to the point where Paul's dropping the mic Philemon and Philemon says, hey, listen you guys are peers, and I am your father figure, and I view him as a peer. Therefore, this guy is a father figure to you. Yeah, you legally, under Roman law, you can make him your slave, and I can't can't legally stop you, but I'm your daddy. I'm your daddy, and he's my brother. How are you going to treat him? I mean, it's a master treatise of subverting slavery and not running afoul of Roman law. Craziness. So anyway, I'm not reading that part of the passage. You've got to understand, is it restricted behavior beyond what people thought and led to a trajectory where every abolitionist movement was born in a Holy Spirit experience? And I can tell you a lot of stories about the European abolitionist movement and the stories behind the stories of the Holy Spirit's role in that. That's another—I could do a 12-week series on that. That would be fun. And Leviticus 24. And I'm going to read this in the message— because they don't have as much numbers in it. All right? Um, where, oh, I did double-sided. You know, I once printed a sermon on double-sided and just skipped the back side, and it didn't make any sense. But people didn't complain because it was a lot shorter. Um, um, oh, jeez. Okay, this is, uh, starting at the beginning or someone can someone get me liquid to drink i 'm like i 'm parched, those four espressos oh, as you give to the least of these cheers in this case, in the marriage i 'm the least competent of these so speak to the people guys listen this is this is like the best one of the best parts of the whole Hebrew scriptures. Speak to the people of Israel. Tell them, when you enter the land which I'm going to give you, the land will observe a Sabbath to God. By the way, no culture had a day off before the Hebrew people. That's an idea. Sow your fields, prune your vineyards, take in your harvests for six years. But the seventh year, the land's going to take a Sabbath of complete and total rest. It's going to be a Sabbath to God. You know, people take a Sabbath every seven days. The land takes a Sabbath every seventh year. I added that in. You will not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Don't reap what grows of itself. Don't harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land gets a year of complete and total rest. But you can eat from what the land volunteers during the Sabbath. You and your men and women and servants and your hired hands and the foreigners who live in your country And of course, your livestock and wild animals in the land can eat from it. Whatever the land produces, go ahead and eat it. Count off seven Sabbaths of years. Seven times seven years. Seven Sabbaths of years adds up to 49 years. He's doing a story problem here. All right. Then sound loud blast on a ram's horn and bring out the brass band on the tenth day of the seventh month, the day of the helmet, sound the ram's horn over the land. Excursion. By the way, uh, every year there were seven festivals. The big part of God's law is you must party. Thou shalt party. And every seventh day, people were supposed to chill and enjoy. Every seventh day, party. Every, after 49 years, after, every seventh year... Year-long party. Every forty after every fifty year, fiftieth year after forty-nine years, year-long party. And all your troubles will be washed away. God knows how to party. Our parties are let's get buzzed or drunk enough so we can't think of how much we're failing in other areas of life. Our parties are let's take the edge off this painful world or the traumas we've increased by substance imbibing or objectifying people and using them for sex. That's our lame excuse for party. God's idea of party is don't work, don't stress, eat well, and every 50 years, all your debts are erased. We're getting to that point. No such thing in God's world as multi-generational poverty, period. It is law, and it's one of the things that this is so echoed in the passage of Daniel. So let's talk about that. Sanctify the 50th year, to emphasize. Make it a holy year. Proclaim freedom all over the land to everyone who lives in it. For a lot of people, let's say college debt was forgiven. The amount of partying in the streets that would happen in America for one kind of debt, for one group of people forgiven. And now people have different feelings about that, blah, 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 you know, whatever. Uh, But imagine the party that would ensue if college debt was forgiven. Now, imagine if everyone's mortgage that was over 50 years got forgiven and college debt was forgiven. What kind of party? Now, what if all those were done and everyone spontaneously had enough food grow in their land or adjacent to them that they didn't have to work at all and they were called to celebrate for an entire year? No one better punch a time card. That is a party I can get behind. So, that's, that's, by the way, that's how God parties. So this is why I say never trust a grumpy theologian. Like, there's, there's a couple theologians that are really well-known. You can listen to podcasts about authoritarian churches. I think the number three podcast in the country right now is about an authoritarian church led by a grumpy, shaming pastor. And listen, this guy may intellectually be able to run circles around some of us, but just look at him. He's a grump. Is the apex of Christian maturity that I'm always angry and ticked off at every human around me and don't like women? Then how about we just presume him and Jesus aren't that close in their operating system and not have to be an expert? I used to, I did this experiment on YouTube. Uh, There was a certain uh, fundamentalist pastor that really had a lot of influence over years, and he was always appearing on Crossfire and other debate shows. And I would put on the clip; they're all still on YouTube, and I would mute them. And wash his countenance and think, would I ever want this person to come to dinner at my house? Would I ever trust this person to watch my kids Whatever I go to them when I'm struggling in my marriage with Adrian? And the answer was, not unless I am a masochist. Not unless, well, I'm not about self-harming with blades, but I'll self-harm by meeting with this person. Don't trust grumps. Now, not to say everyone's grumpy sometimes, but people who have an operating system of grumpiness and are saying farewell to everyone they disagree on. Lord, have mercy on them. I believe they know Jesus. I just believe they know him at a distance, and they're in for a shock in eternity to see how effective the love of Christ really has been. Anyway. Oh, my gosh. Well, I better hurry past this. Each person will go to his fam- uh, So I'm going to just summarize this, and you can read it. So basically, every, everyone, if you had a bad harvest, you could not eat. You would have to sell the farm. You would, quote, lose the farm. It happens like almost every week to a farmer in Ohio alone. You'd lose the farm, but people could not buy it in perpetuity and start a giant holding company that owns all the agricultural land, which one person owns the biggest chunk of agricultural land in the entire country, the breadbasket of the world, one person. What would happen is, well, Year of Jubilee is 20 years off from now, so I can get 20 harvests from there, Figure a couple of those harvests will be poopers. So let's say I want to give you 16 harvests worth of money for this land. And 20 years from now, when we hit Jubilee, it's all back to you. I'll take care of it for you. So it wasn't like if, you, if your crops fail, crops could fail because an earthquake. Crops could fail because someone just was uh, getting drunk all the time and didn't run their farm. But regardless, guess what? That person's children didn't have to live under the specter of losing the farm. Those, that person's children could still train and work the farm, learn to be a farmer from daddy and some of the other people, and one day that farm would be theirs. So there were, in Israel, there would have never been two generations of poverty in any family. Wow. There would not be two generations of poverty. But notice, it didn't ever excuse people from working hard when you sold your property, you still worked. You worked. There was always the blessing because even in eternity, we get to work. We get to create. Jeff Johnson, like when I see your artwork you do with wood and how you reclaim wood, I feel like that's close to heaven. There's so much kingdom of God about carpentry because Jeff, you use reclaimed wood that people rejected. You make things of beauty and people spend good money for it because it's awesome. And part of like, you know, in the new heavens and new earth, there's going to be no debt collectors, but there's going to be a lot of Jeff Johnsons, right? And can you imagine doing that and not feeling like you're tired and your back hurts and you don't have time? So I look to prof- professions like Jeff's and say, I see the kingdom now. It's like not the already. So this idea, but not laboring under this debt, takes one of the biggest things, because I've seen, there are countless Appalachian families living in poverty that you probably can't imagine. And their forebears were blacksmiths and tanners that had to compete with slave-owning plantations that could lowball them on everything. Because they had slaves and these people working it, so they became the poorest of the poor. The, poor white, the system of slavery exploited white people by giving them a system they could never compete upon. And the ironic thing is, we've defunded the education in all of Appalachia because their property taxes are crap. Is we have all these generations where people haven't had access to the textbooks I had access to, even in the teachers. And I had an IEP growing up. Do you guys know what an IEP is? I was special, am special. In those areas, you don't even have money to help kids that had needs like I did. Uh, my learning disabilities, as they were called by some, would have prevented me from learning in a defunded school district. But all that came from slavery, and now we have multi-generational poverty. But even in the worst-case scenario, if people obeyed God, you still worked. Nothing was a handout, but it, it would prevented the playing field from being destroyed and, and turned into hell. So Israel obeyed many laws. They were really good about mitigating household mold. They were really good about what kinds of shaves to get and not get. They were really good to say no to pork. And the only reason I believe they were able to say no to pork is no one figured out the miraculous provision of God through bacon. Bacon was bacon was the I think in the I think the reason maybe pork was considered unclean because there's only one right way to cook it to make it clean. And when God brings the truth of Abraham's family to all nations, Peter has a vision of all food being good to eat. Nothing's off limits. So it's Jesus is risen. Bacon is here. Just an idea. So anyway, uh, but this idea, uh, there's so much minuscule expertise in the law. You see, Jesus gets in trouble all the time. Jesus is a lawbreaker. But what... Israel never did, not one time, observe jubilee. Israel never had a year of jubilee. They never, from, from the law on Sinai to Daniel, celebrated jubilee. Now, through some very strange math, in other words, the 70 weeks, the 77s of Daniel... Uh, Whenever you talk sevens, you're thinking of God's week, and you're thinking of Sabbath and Jubilee. In ways, I I literally have a 400-page paper explaining all the cultural ways Daniel 9 is about Jubilee, and it's amazing. It is actually like spoken word poetry, even in the footnotes. It's so awesome. But suffice to say, Daniel 77s in the passage that uh, we read last week is a reference to God not returning in his entire fullness until, the, until the, there is a marking, in the, until we've experienced the exile that occurs in a world without jubilee. Until we experience the entirety. And now God is not throwing down lightning bolts like Zeus. A lot of Christians actually believe in Zeus with a different name. He's basically saying, we live in this misery because we don't do jubilee. God is not pulling down our trousers and spaking us on the butt because of no jubilee lack of jubilee creates misery. I've never, I mean, you'll never meet a happy person at the top of the pecking order ever. Um, so all that to say, as I want to read a little part of Dan- just a little bit of part of this, uh, Daniel bit. Verse 24, 77s are decreed for your people in your holy city to finish transgressions. To put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness. By the way, whenever you read righteousness, especially the uh, book of the Old Testament, you should always also hear justice too. They're inextricable concepts. To seal up the vision, count off seven Sabbath years, seven times, and then it gets into the math dyslexia. I encourage you to read this later. And a lot of people, different theolo- theologians, have used this to predict the exact day that Jesus goes into Jerusalem on the donkey, except we figure out the numbers don't work. Or they figure the exact day that Jesus rose from the dead is calculated by this. But then we find out through astronomy that the days didn't work out. But once again, we're not using numbers the way Western people use numbers. He's not doing, sewing like 77s is what a vast amount of mark missing have we missed as a world that, doesn't have the practice of jubilee in our hearts. We have the idea of jubilee, but the practice. So friends, what does jubilee say to you? Well, here's what Jesus says. Uh, Here's how Jesus talks about jubilee. And by the way, when Jesus preached this, uh, a lot of local theologians said, farewell, Jesus. I mean, this turned off a lot of people towards Jesus. Uh, This is the first time, this is what I think, other than perhaps carpentry accidents, This is the first near-death experience of Jesus, I think. All right? Okay. Jesus got up in Nazareth. It was his turn to read the Bible. Just so happened he got to pick a passage that said what he was all about. He said this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery to sight for the blind and set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is the, throughout the rest of the scripture, do you know what Jubilee is called? The year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is saying, I'm living, breathing, walking Jubilee on you I'm living, breathing, walking jubilee. And through the Great Commission, we become disciples, formed to be like a Jesus. We all get to be mini jubilees going around. And jubilees mean, how do we forgive people? Jubilees mean, how do we love those even who see themselves as our enemy? Jubilee means, do we spend more time demonstrating mercy to our kids or law to our kids? We are living, breathing satellites of love. or satellites of jubilee. I was going to the book of Lou Reed right there for a second. We are satellites of jubilee. And what I want to say to you, the person with body image issues, body image issues, so often seem to be rooted in trauma. So much of trauma, whether it's physical or sexual abuse or verbal abuse, trauma is rooted in, I do not have to treat you like a human. Trauma is rooted in, I can treat you like an object. Trauma is rooted in you are at the bottom and you're of no value. Jubilee is rooted in setting things right. So your eating disorder, your self-harm, your your just uh, chronic repeating self-hate stuff in your head is all rooted in anti-jubilee. When we hate others, we are divorced from the spirit of walking Jesus' jubilee. But I want to just say you this Bible is not ir- irrelevant. This Daniel 9 with this seemingly cryptic prophecy directly goes to the heart of every way you are suffering. This cryptic prophecy is not so I can know why anyone who's politically not fully aligned with Israel is wrong, and every single thing Israel does is perfect. Even at, at this, this is about jubilee for all. Israel is America, Uzbekistan. I always talk about Uzbekistan because I love the way it sounds. It's like super Uzbekistan delicious. Anyway, so guys, I'm commissioning you. Guys, lift your hands up. Not because this is witchcraft or anything, but you I, I I pray on you, Holy Spirit Jubilee. I pray the Jubilee touches your trauma. I pray your ruminations on Jubilee would be a kind of either CBT or DBT that can help rewire your brain to be a jubilee brain. I pray that an fMRI or something could show a month from now a brain that looks different because the Holy Spirit bringing jubilee into your life. The life I live in the body, I live by faith. Faith impacts our body, brain part of body. Amen, amen.